Nobody loved the deal Congress worked out to raise the debt ceiling, but it did avoid default and gives a spending blueprint for fiscal 2024. It's not quite the defense bonanza it appears to be, according to my next guest. Elaine McCusker is senior fellow at the Conservative American Enterprise Institute, and she joins me now. Ms. McCusker, good to have you with us. Hey, thanks for inviting me. And we should point out you are also former acting comptroller of the Pentagon, so you know whereof you speak here. But let's begin the review of the defense budget specifics that were in that debt deal. Yeah, you know, I think there's both good news and bad news for defense in the budget agreement. The caps are too low and the provision on continuing resolutions is even worse. But I'll start with a little bit of good news here. First, the agreement I think is good in three key ways. First, it demonstrated that compromise on complicated issues is still possible. We knew back in January when the debt limit was hit that Treasury and Treasury started using their special measures to juggle payments and cash that we would need action on this issue. Yet nothing really happened to do anything about it for months. And I think, you know, we have seen a high and increasing level of acrimony and at times even a lack of professionalism on the part of our leaders. So the fact that the White House and Republican House leadership reached a deal that was then passed and enacted, I think is just good news in and of itself. It saved the country from reputational, economic, and national security damage. That reputational thing is kind of important right now because in a lot of domains, we're probably not showing our best sides you might say, this decade? You no, know, I think you can say that, you know, this whole situation was somewhat embarrassing and bordering on disgraceful that, you know, we would not be able to have our house in order to this degree. And I think, you know, we were risking a lot of economic and national security damage as we did the run up to almost defaulting on the debt limit. So reaching a deal in and of itself was a good thing. The deal removed the arbitrary, in my view, damaging and irresponsible link between defense and non-defense spending. This link could resurface and it probably well. But it was important, I think, to acknowledge getting rid of it as a good thing. Defense is the only mandatory and exclusive job of the federal government, so it should not be a priority. It should be the priority. And yet defense is only 12% of budget at federal budget outlays. And budgets, they should also be based on requirements. So what is needed to carry out direct admissions of a department or agency, and not on some sort of politically driven parity, which is what we've really been seeing since at least the Budget Control Act era. Right. And so it's 50-50 on the so-called discretionary side, even though it's only 12% of total outlays that the government puts there every year. And that's correct. And even though the Defense Department had needed increases for various really good reasons over the last decade or so, we saw forced increases to domestic spending to keep that parity, even though there weren't valid requirements against that spending. And so I think that was sort of damaging overall. And also the parity issue actually jammed up budget agreements for years as well. So I think the fact that we gave a nod towards not doing the budget that way was a good thing in and of itself as well. And third, I mean, I think the deal, at least initially, seemed like it would provide some much needed budget certainty that leads to better programmatic decision making and cost savings. Now, this could certainly blow up and it seems it has. But budget agreements, as we mentioned at the beginning, in and of themselves are a good thing. And if you have a top line in which to build your program from the start, you're going to make better decisions and you're going to have sort of more transparency in what you're doing. That budget agreement should have paved the way for some stability. Unfortunately, that hope for momentum 
and towards stability and potentially on-time appropriations is not trending in the right direction, which kind of gets to the bad news. But I'll stop there for a second so we can enjoy the good news. We're speaking with Elaine McCusker. She's senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and former acting comptroller of the Defense Department. You are also saying that on the bad news side then that while certain or to some degree more certain than it was, it's not enough. Yeah, you know, I think what we're seeing now is that in addition to the budget caps being too low for defense, we now also have allocations provided on the House side to the appropriations subcommittees that are below the agreement caps in some cases. So that happy moment from the budget deal is already pretty much gone. And we're seeing partisan appropriations bills in the House, which, by the way, actually happened when the Democrats were in charge, too. But this means we could see what we've been seeing for more than a decade, which is ping pong between the House and Senate and sort of a stalemate come the fall which I think increases our chances for a long-term continuing resolution. Congress has only done its job in passing on-time appropriations bills before the end of the fiscal year three times in the last 47 years. So I think that's, you know, sort of important note that in one of the reasons I thought this was positive, maybe this would be one of those years. Congress kind of recognized the damage of continuing resolutions by actually putting a provision in the budget deal that imposes a penalty if a continuing resolution goes beyond the end of the calendar year. Unfortunately, that penalty is the equivalent of shooting the hostage. Sure. Not put the penalty on those who need to take action to pass the bills, Congress. It penalizes those who can't do anything about it, the federal departments and actually the taxpayer. Right. And in your experience, when funds do come through late, as they basically always do, even though people pretend that there's a start of a fiscal year and it's all fresh and clean, but the agencies are on that CR, what is the practical effect of that in your experience inside the Pentagon and the armed services? Yeah, there's a lot of immediate and long-term effects. And I think it's interesting that we're already hearing conversations about government shutdowns. It's mid-June. We don't usually hear about that kind of thing until September. I see the continuing resolutions having five basic impacts on the military and our national security. First, funding is not enough. And I think even if this were a normal year, which it's not going to be, the Department of Defense would lose about $180 million a day starting October 1st under a continuing resolution. Second, funding is not in the right account. And so we're really using last year's priorities and strategy and programs and just extending them into the new year, which means that anything you wanted to do in procurement or DT&E or even MILPERS requirements, MILCON requirements, you're going to be stuck with last year's amounts. The third reason is you can't do new starts or production increases. Typically, there are hundreds of these each year. This year, most notable in the munitions accounts, the administration planned to spend close to $6 billion more in 24 than in 23 on munitions. And that will all be, you know, sort of a consequence of a CR that we, we won't be able to do that. The fourth fourth reason is incremental funding contracts and you're just not getting the best bag for your buck and you're having uncertainty sort of go throughout the industrial base, the supply chain, and pretty much everyone who kind of lives and works with DOD is going to be impacted by this. And then fifth reason, you lose time in training, production, operations. Time can't be bought back. And as a matter of fact, I think General Brown, who is the nominee to be the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs, said this best recently when he said, all the money in the world cannot buy, cannot buy more time. Time is your recoverable. And when you are working to keep pace against well-resourced and focused competitors, time matters. We'll leave it there, and let's hope maybe they'll get their act into gear. Elaine McCusker is Senior Fellow of the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview and a link to her analysis at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. 
Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. Now, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show 
the nation, how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. 
That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.